feels really good for me today to say, open your Bibles. We are going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I want to thank Joanne for reading that passage today. I uh, just need to warn you, you kind of need to strap on the seatbelt because uh, we're going to be in this one for a while. Uh, this is one of the longer series because 1 Corinthians uh, has 16 chapters to it. So when you kind of add it all up, going chapter by chapter and kind of uh, section by section of this book, we're going to be at this, again, taking a few breaks around Easter and stuff, maybe around uh, graduation times, probably finishing this book around mid-August. So this is a good uh, six-month journey for us. And I'm really excited because, uh, again, there's so much in this book that I think is valuable to the church today. Um, I want to just go ahead and let you know that um, I've given this series a one-word title, and that one-word title is Untangled. And I'm giving it that title because, well, the Corinthian church had their tangles, and all of us also have our tangles, and so we're going to find out that Paul deals with this church with a lot of compassion and yet direct force as he's talking to them about the things that they're tangled with and the things that he can untangle that will get them back on track. Uh, some of you have had the joy of teaching kids fishing. Raise your hand if you've ever had some kids that you've gone fishing with. Some of you have raised your hands to that. You need that joy if you don't have that. Um, there's just something giddy about watching a child that kind of you know, has that fish tug and then they kind of bring it in and some kids run away from it and some kids want to pet the fish and it's, you know, it's all a lot of fun to watch that all occur. But if you ever have a chance to do fishing with any children, the one thing I can guarantee you is tangles. In fact, the reel is just going to get a massive rat's nest of monofilament line, and you're going to be, especially if you had a couple kids, you know, you're not even really fishing. All you're doing is just pulling line of a line apart, and you're untangling a line. And you know what? That's kind of the way it is in church, too. You know, you, you, you'd think... You know, hey, people called by God, filled with the Holy Spirit, how easy is it to run a church, right? Well, I'm here to tell you, it's not that easy. There's tangles, and there's tangles with every church. And here's the issue. We've got an enemy, we've got a world that looks very enticing, and we've got our own flesh. And you put those three together, and those always are going to create a level of tangles in the church. And so, again, today is our introduction to the book. I want to give you a snapshot of what this book is all about. And this is a, by way of kind of introduction. We are in that first section, those nine verses. But what I really want to do is paint a, a backdrop to help you understand the book as we move forward. So there's three things I want to cover today. I want to cover the history of Corinth. I know that may sound a little bit boring, but it, believe me, it's not. By the time I start telling you a little bit about that, it's going to set you up to understand some of the things that are in the book. I want to talk about Paul and Corinth. So how did Paul ever get there? How did he plant the church there? And then I want to cover the uh, main topics or the tangles that he's going to address at the church. I have given you all a handout. And if you're at home today, if you look right below the uh, YouTube feed, there's a spot where you can download the PDF of the uh, outline that you've got. Just keep that in your hand. We're going to be referring to that at several times today. And I'm hoping that this is one that you will actually keep. Maybe you'll keep it in your Bible or you'll keep it in something that you can refer back to it because through the course of the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to be tapping back on, hey, this is where he is and this is where he's going, and this will give us a little good roadmap for that. Well, I'd like to begin with the very first thing I mentioned, which is the history of Corinth. 
And uh, let's go ahead and cover that together. Um, many people would say that the first Corinthians book could aptly be titled First Californians. And they, they give that title because, again, everything on the West Coast, all the cities on the West Coast, have a lot in common with Corinth. We are progressive cities. We're cities with a lot of commerce. We're cities with a lot of wealth. And that was one of the things that was very true about the, uh, the, the spot of Corinth or the city of Corinth. It was rich and it was ostentatious. I mean, I'm guaranteeing you there was a lot of Tesla chariots going on at that time in that city. It was really a, a spot to, to make wealth and it was a spot that was, you know, it was a place that was going and blowing. There is somebody I want to bring to your attention because I think they capture the spirit of Corinth very well. And there is an actor named Ricardo Montalban. Everybody remember Ricardo Montalban? I got a picture of him here. And Ricardo Montalban, you remember he was on Fantasy Island in the 70s, but he had one saying, and he, he advertised for the Chrysler Cordoba, and he said, fine Corinthian leather. And he was always touting the fine Corinthian leather that was in the car. And what he was saying was, it was opulent, it was wealthy, it was, it was a fine luxury item. And, you know, that has a lot to do with what's going on in Corinth at this time. There is, you know, fine Corinthian leather and many other things that could be found in the city of Corinth. And its wealth didn't come by accident. Let me tell you a little bit about the city. First of all, the city enjoyed a very strategic location, a very strategic location. Of course, it was on the Mediterranean uh, Ocean or the Mediterranean Sea. And I've got a, a, a picture here of the Mediterranean at that time. And if you'll pull that up for me, next slide. There it is. Uh, you'll notice Israel all the way over to the right. You'll notice the boot all the way to the left of, is, of Italy and, and Rome. And then you kind of come down and you'll see there in red, I've highlighted where Corinth is. And the next slide, I'm giving you a close-up of this location. And I'm giving you that because, well, in real estate, location, 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 and Corinth Man, they just enjoyed a great location, and here's why. You'll notice that they are a center town in the middle of that little band of land right there, and they have an, uh, an ocean or a sea on either side of them. And so they're a trade route in a major way. That little band of land is a geographical term called an isthmus, an isthmus, and it's four miles wide and ten miles long, and because it was right situated right there, it had this most wonderful uh, two harbors that were on it. Now, again, you might think that, well, um, you know, we would just dig a canal across that. Wouldn't that be awesome? And all kinds of people tried to do that, to dig a canal across that so ships could pass right through that spot. You've got Alexander the Great that tried to do that. You've got Julius Caesar that tried to do that. And during Paul's time... Uh, Caesar Nero tried to do that in 67 AD, but guess what? All of them failed. And a strait was not built in that, or a canal was not built in that, all the way until 1893. That was when it was finally completed. So well after the time of Paul. And so again, that little isthmus right there is so important. And they were trying to figure out, okay, how could we keep ships going uh, through this space? Because they don't want to go all the way around the cape or the tip because there's all kinds of cross currents and cross winds sink ships really fast out there. So how could we keep this little band of land open and how could we let ships pass through this from Rome to the other part of the world and back? And they came up with an ingenious idea. They said, guess what? We are going to build these little carts that we can raise a ship on 
and we can pull by cart across that four miles of land. I've got a picture here for you of what that cart path looks like today. It's still in existence today, and that is an iconic piece of Corinth, and they would pull the cargo across that, they would pull the boats across that, and that's what made this city mega wealthy, is because they had business and commerce worked out like none other. And so this place enjoys this, this business engine that is just propelling the city forward. Well, it wasn't only commerce that they were good at. It wasn't only shipping lanes that they were good at. It wasn't only trade that they were good at. They were also an entertainment capital of the world. Most of you know that if you've read uh, the book of 1 Corinthians very long, you know that the Corinthians have a little bit of a sordid past. But I want to, before we get to the kind of the dark side, I want to tell you the real good side. Because there's some really good things that are happening in Corinth that are very altruistic. One of the things that happens there is they have some games. You know the Olympic games very well. And the Olympic modern games come from the ancient modern games that were held in Athens. And uh, there was another games at that time. There was a, a, a four Olympiad or four, it was called the Panhellenic Games. There were four different games that were held. And guess what? Corinth had two of them. And they were on either side of the big Olympics. So they were the year before and the year after. And they held an Olympics that was second only to the main Olympics that were in Athens. I've got a coin here that is from the British Museum that is a coin that was minted in Corinth at this time. And you can see the laurel wreath there, which was the wreath that the victor of any of the games wore. And it was really saying, again, Corinth is this place in which the uh, Isthmian Games, that's what they were called, the Isthmian Games were held, and they were held years on end, and all kinds of people from all over the world poured into Corinth in order to be entertained by the games. Well, the second most popular thing that was happening there, and the games were one of them, uh, was a little bit darker. And of course, uh, the, 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 the entertainment there that was going on was not just howdy-doody, it was not you know, American apple pie, there was something else that was happening there. And again, like all Roman cities, there were several things that were buildings there. There was, uh, number one, the Agora. That was the place that was the sh like the shopping mall of the Roman Empire. You had the amphitheater where you could go and watch uh, Roman or Greek plays that happened. You had a forum where all political matters happened. You had a bath area where people were kind of like in a gymnasium area where they had baths and they had uh, kind of workout areas. And then you had the crown jewel in Corinth. And if you walked into Corinth and you were making your way through the city, on the very backside of the city, there was a little outcropping that raised up above the city. It was about a mile away. And if you made your way to that city, it was called the Acropolis or the Acro-Corinth. What that means is above Corinth. And I've got a picture here of what the Acro-Corinth looks like today. And on the backside was the crown jewel of the city, and it was the temple of Aphrodite, the temple of Aphrodite, the temple of love, or what we might even say better is the temple of lust, because out of that Corinth, it's said that there were a thousand temple prostitutes that made their way down into the city every day and plied their trade, and they were the ones that kept the temple going, and they were the ones that were in active worship, uh, quote-unquote, of what was happening in the city. And by the way, this was just considered normal in the city of Corinth. 
I mean, Corinth would have been kind of the combination of maybe an L.A. and a Seattle with a little sprinkling of Las Vegas in there too. And that's the, that's the tenor of the city. They had a very dismal reputation in the city. In fact, one of the sayings was, not every man can afford a trip to Corinth. What they were saying was, you can't afford it because of the ostentatious lifestyle. You can't afford it because of all the temple prostitutes and everything else that's going on out of the temple of Aphrodite. Every time there was a play that was a Greek play, if a Corinthian was mentioned, he was almost normally always mentioned as a drunk. Because again, this was the nature of life there in Corinth at the time. So Corinth is this place, it's this city, it's the city of wealth, it's the city of excess, it's the city of sexual uh, promiscuity. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if this was the city that was first coined the phrase, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. You know, so that's kind of the city, you get the vibe of it. And so people flocked to Corinth for the games, they flocked to Corinth for all of this uh, sexual action, and it was, uh, again, a place in which there was, you know, a city that didn't sleep was really what was happening with uh, Corinth at that time. There's one more piece I want you to see about the history of this city. And the city uh, was also a place of what was, is known as religious pluralism. And we say religious pluralism, we mean that different beliefs all existed side by side and coexisted, and that was a place in which there was really a lot of sexual variety, excuse me, of uh, religious variety. Sexual variety probably too, but religious variety. You had the Temple of Aphrodite that I mentioned, but don't think that that was the single influence in the town. There were dozens of temples listed to many different gods. So there was a temple to Zeus, a temple to Neptune, a temple to Athena, a temple to Artemis. I mean, just on and on and on, all of these temples to other gods. You had Egyptian mystery religions that were also represented there, and even magic. There was a high level of magic that was exercised in the city. And so Corinth is swimming with this smorgasbord of all of these religious options. And everybody had a God to seek and everybody had a God to protect. And most Corinthians would accommodate all different kinds of religious practices. Most believed that there were safety in numbers. So again, it was better to appease a lot of gods just to make sure you had all your bases covered. And so that was the nature of worship in uh, Corinth. Christians, therefore, obviously had a tough time. Paul would have had a tough time coming to this city because Paul is claiming something that they don't much like. That's really an affront to the city because Paul is claiming that there's one God. He's disclosed himself through Jesus Christ, his, his, his birth, his death, and his resurrection, and that he is the only one. He's the only true God. And in, in, in Corinth, that would have just been a ridiculous statement to make because in Corinth, you preserve the state or you preserve the city and the social order by appeasing all these gods and by affirming all these gods. And I think we have a lot in common with Corinth today because we in America live with a lot of religious pluralism. We live in a place where, again, the only thing that's really wrong is to say that any religion is wrong. <laughs> you, can, you can practice almost anything you want, but to say that doesn't make sense and I, you know, that, that's a false religion, that would be the thing that would really raise hackles in our common era today. Let me give you a couple of, of quotes that I think will help you with this. Uh, the idea that religious pluralism is really the way to go. Mahatma Gandhi said this, My position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. And Paul would have been coming to Corinth and saying, No, that, that's, that's not right. <laughs> They're not all equal. Salvation is found through this one man. Uh, the famous TV rabbi 
uh, his name is Shmuley Botich. I've not necessarily heard of him, but I saw this quote, and I like this. He says, I'm absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism. And so he's saying, this is a racist statement to say that there's one way, that all, all religions are not the same. And then I save the best for last, theologian Oprah Winfrey. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe that there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. And boy, Oprah just speaks on behalf, really, of the masses with that. And so again, what's happening in Rome, or excuse me, in Corinth at this time, because they are a Roman city, is that they practice all different kinds of religions simultaneously, and everybody joins in with a great sense of patriotism to practice the, uh, the, the religious festival of the day. And so all of that is pulsing in the city of Corinth. There's one more thing that I want you to see about this place, and perhaps it's really the undergirding of all of it. The thing that was practiced the most was what was called the imperial cult. And the imperial cult was really the following of the emperor of Rome. They did not believe that the emperor was God, so they were not worshiping him as God, but they were worshiping what was called the genius of the emperor. And by the genius, they meant the totality of his impersonal power or the totality of the power of his office. And they, they, they believed that that was humongous and worthy of not just patriotism, but really worship or, or, or ascribe, you know, again, devotion to the fact that the emperor had this level of genius that was representing the power of Rome. And so everybody was called to fall in line and to worship the state, as it were, and to say, this is what we really want to, uh, <laughs> this is where we really want to hang our, our hat or where we really want to count on. And, you know, again, I think this book is going to mean something to us because Paul is going to address that. And I think it's very easy in our country today for us to also fall for the same thing, that political power is really where we want to put our chips. And Paul's going to have a few things to say about that to us and warn us about that because, again, that's not where we're going to find our ultimate security. Well, because of, the city, uh, because of this, the city faced many challenges. It faced many tangles. And uh, the city was the spot where, again, Paul decided a church was going to be planted or God decided that a church was going to be planted. And it's, interestingly, the only church that Paul ever writes to that didn't suffer some outside persecution. Isn't that interesting? They had their hands full with all this internal stuff and all the stuff going on in the city. So it's the church that's not outwardly, at least that we know of, persecuted. And here it is that Paul is going to plant a church there. I'm going to leave uh, the quote for this section to Gordon Fee. And I like what he says. He says, the problem was not that the church was in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in the church. And that's what ends up happening. Anytime you're in that kind of environment, it's very easy for Corinth to slip into the church and to misguide the church and to create tangles for the church that need to be addressed. All right, so that's the first section. It's the history. I want to move now to... Corinth and Paul and figure out how this church got planted there and who he's writing to. So Paul is uh, traveling around on his second missionary journey. I've got a picture of his second missionary journey. Starts all the way over on the right-hand side at Antioch, makes his way all, all the way across Asia, and then down that area of Macedonia into Achaia, where he's both at Athens and at Corinth, and plants churches in both of those locations. If you want a little historical backdrop, Acts chapter 18 is where this is covered. And so Paul gives a, or excuse me, Luke records Paul's journey and what happened in 
Corinth at that time. Paul stays with uh, these two people called Priscilla and Aquila, and he stays with them for 18 months as he plants the church. This is the second longest place. He only stayed in Ephesus longer. He's the longest in Corinth at 18 months, and a church is planted there until he is driven away in a level of uh, unrest. We piece together what happened with Paul through the book of Acts and through 1 Corinthians. And what we know, and by the way, I'm at the bottom of your uh, handout sheet here, in the bottom little section. Church, the church is planted by Paul around 50 A.D., and he stays there for about 18 months until uh, roughly 52. Then we find that there is a letter that is sent by Paul, uh, and, and excuse me, he receives a letter from them, and we find that out because in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, it says this. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. We'll, get, we'll cover the content of that in a minute. But I want you to notice there, he said, you wrote me. And so there's a letter that Paul receives from the church in Corinth. And so, again, this is a lost letter today. We don't have that letter. We could very easily, if we had that letter have labeled it 1 Corinthians, and this letter we're reading now would have been 2 Corinthians, and then there would have been a 3 Corinthians. But this letter's lost, and so we don't know where it is. But Paul receives a letter from them that's asking uh, some details. We also know this. Paul wrote a letter back to them. And we know that from 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Again, the content of that later. Oops, you know, I just messed that up. He receives a letter from them. He sends a letter to them. That's the lost letter, the one that he sent, not the one that he received, although that's lost too. But the one that he sent was the one that I really meant to say could have been easily 1 Corinthians. But you get the idea. He receives the letter from them. He sends a letter to them. And then the last piece that I want you to see, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 17, there is a delegation that comes to him and starts talking to him. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived. Say that three times fast because they have supplied what was lacking from you. And so he's saying, I had this delegation from your church that arrived and we talked. And so most scholars believe that Paul, what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians is he's responding to two things. He's responding to the things that he's heard about the church, and I'm arguing that that's the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book is he's responding to things that they put in writing that they're saying We'd love for you to give us doctrine about this. How should we think about this? And so please write to us and tell us about how we should be doing certain things. And the book is, is, is a comp compilation of these things that he's learned about the church and things that they've specifically asked about. This is one of the best organized letters that, that Paul puts together topically. It's just one topic after another, and he says, hey, now let me talk to you about this. Now let me talk to you about this. Let me talk to you about this. And he goes in-depth on what the problem was and how they're charged to untangle that problem. So maybe that's a good opportunity for us to shift gears now and to shift to uh, what it is that uh, he actually is going to address in this book. And you'll see there in your outline that I'm saying there are five main sections of 1 Corinthians, five sections. Let me just give you a little highlight of each one of those sections. The very first section is going to be divisions and rivalries. And in the church in Corinth, they said, you know who my guy is? It's Francis Chan. And another guy said, no, I really like Tim Keller. And somebody else said, oh, no, Matt Chandler, he's the best. In case you don't know it, those are all very common pastors of today. and Very easy to follow them online. 
And so again, it was like that. They just had people that they said, oh man, when it comes to just hearing the truth, when it comes to hearing a good sermon, that's my guy. Only in the names in this case were Apollos or Paul or Peter. And he says, you have sectioned yourself out in the church and you have these individuals that you're following. And he's going to say, hey, time out here. Which one of those guys rose from the dead from you? Which one of those guys is the person you were baptized into the name of? Answer, none of them. And so we need to reorient you so that you're not following mere humans, but you're getting your allegiance back to Christ again. And that's going to be the whole first section that we begin to cover is about these rivalries. The second is about sex and marriage. And Paul's going to tell the church in Corinth, you know, some of the things that you're doing because you think you have so much liberty, it would make pagans blush because it is some really heinous stuff. He's going to tell them about one of the persons in the church that he's heard about that is, that is sleeping with his father's wife. We're not sure if that's a stepmom or if it is mom. We're not quite sure of that. But he's sleeping with his father's wife. And the church is celebrating this and saying, look at all the liberty we have. And they're celebrating this. And he's saying, this ought not to be. You know, you're, you're, you're very misguided here. So let me come back and tell you about the purpose of the human body. And I want to tell you about sexuality. And I want to tell you about marriage. And so that whole section is a, a substantial one. And we'll be in that for a number of weeks. The next section deals with food and idols. And that's going to really deal with all of our personal liberties. What's happening at that time is you've got all of these temples. And all of them are sacrificing animals. And so out the backside of the temple is a butcher shop. And that butcher shop is selling the meat of all those animals. And so people regularly in the city go to those butcher shops and they buy meat that's been sacrificed to uh, other gods. And the question is, can Christians do that? Can Christians go and buy that meat and eat that meat? And is that safe to do and is that wise to do? And so Paul is going to address that and many other issues in that section that deal with the personal liberties that we have and how much, how, how much freedom do we really have? What are the constraints around that freedom in the church? And so uh, another big section for us. The next section in section four deals with worship. And as you can imagine, with a church that's got this many things going on in the city, well, their public gatherings were, you know, they were rather racy. I mean, there was kind of more of a circus atmosphere as what Paul paints the picture of. There were all kinds of utterances and tongues and it was freewheeling and woohoo, here we go. And Paul says, I want to address the atmosphere of your worship and I want to bring some correction to it. I want to repair some things that are broken or could be very misguided again for individuals that are with you that are seeking Jesus. And so I want to make sure that what you're doing in your worship services has a level of order to it and let's talk. And so he's going to address this uh, idea of their personal worship. Finally, there's one more section. It's in chapter 15, a long chapter, and it deals with resurrection. And there were some people in the church that were saying the resurrection had already happened. And so Paul's going to deal with the resurrection, the nature of it, and specifically what happens with our bodies as we are resurrected. And, you know, we don't talk a lot about that, but I think there's some exciting sections of that for us also in we, as we talk about resurrection. All right. So you're going to hold on to this little outline here and you're going to use that as we kind of march our way through week by week. I'm hoping that that's a good roadmap for you as we make our way. And again, what we're doing here is we're addressing a church that's in trouble. It's got some problems that it can see and other problems that it can't see. You know, and I love the statement that some make. Some people say, you know, I just want to get back to being the New Testament church. 
And, you know, you, you always want to ask those people, well, maybe like Corinth, you mean? You know, it's like, because if that's the New Testament church you want to be, I'm telling you, there's some things that you got to iron out. Because everything was not, you know, uh, roses there uh, by any stretch. You wonder, how would Paul approach this church? Would Paul approach this church like a mother, real tender? Or would Paul approach this church like a drill sergeant? I mean, how is he going to come to this church? I'm here to tell you, I think that Paul is very hopeful. Paul is going to be very direct. Not going to pull any punches, but he's going to be very hopeful. And I know I didn't really cover the section today, per se. I covered a lot more of the background. But let me just give you four verses. These four verses, I think, are very uh, endemic of the way that Paul is going to approach the church. He says, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be His holy people. And so he's tapping them back immediately to their calling. Attacking, or attacking their, their, the idea that there's something other than people that are anchored in Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I always thank my God for you. I mean, I could believe that if you knew this much about the church with this many problems, would you start by thanking God for them? Well, Paul does. Look at verse 5. For in him you've been enriched in every way. And so he's going to talk to them about all the ways that they've been enriched by God, which allows them to make course corrections. And then in verse 8, he will also keep you firm to the end. And so he's saying, God's doing a work among you, and he's going to keep you firm all the way to the end. He's got a plan here. He's working it out. And you're going to be the recipients of this. Sure, we're going to roll up our sleeves. We're going to deal with some of these tangles that you're experiencing. But it's going to be great in the end because you're going to be able to address these issues with the anchoring and the power of God. And so I'm charging you, church, get ready. Because we're going to deal with some tangles of life, some tangles that maybe are actually ones that we feel right here at CCF. And we're going to be able to address those with the right attitude and the right perspective. God is revealing Himself to us. And any change that we make, that we are called to make, is all for one purpose. It's for God's glory and our betterment. And as we make our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, there will be tangles that we are called by God to unravel, as it were, or untangle. But those are all going to be done because we face and we follow a God who loves us deeply and whose glory is worth our efforts and worth our attention to those matters. So I'm hoping that today you're a little excited for next week and the weeks to come. I am. I'm looking forward to every chapter, and there's certain chapters I'm already nervous about. Woo! Because if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, there's some stuff there. And there's probably a reason why I haven't uh, preached this book ever in my pastoral life. I've kind of saved this one because uh, I've, there's some controversy there, and there's some hard passages. But I'm to the spot maybe in my, uh, my, my career, my time as a pastor, to be able to address some of those. And I think we're going to be on a very good journey together. Would you pray with me? Father... Thank you that you've written about the hard stuff. And thank you that you have put together churches that have tangles. And the church in Corinth was that church, and we also are that church. We're a church that is saved by grace but is full of sinners. And Lord, we are in constant need of your direction, constant need of your, your Holy Spirit, constant need of, of your guiding uh, word. And we count on that today, and we ask in these coming weeks... Open our hearts to what you have. Open our hearts that we would hear the very things that are needed in our lives in order that we might live lives 
of worthiness for the gospel. We thank you for these things, and we as a church stand ready for the full dose of your Holy Spirit and all of his uh, correction for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.